In the meantime, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you haven't already done so, as we work our way through the Bible and the teachings of Paul in this case. And let me try to set this up a little bit to help us, even though uh, if you've been here steadily, you kind of know where we're at here. But this is a very unusual uh, passage of Scripture, uh, to say the least. The first thing we need to realize is that the surrounding culture that the Corinthians are living in is a, uh, is a culture that has, that they, if they heard me talk about what marriage is about, they would just simply laugh and wonder what I'm talking about. Their sexual immorality, or at least what we call sexual immorality to them is, is normality. And so all of these uh, people in this Corinthian culture are getting saved and forming the church, and they're struggling to try to figure out how to go from that culture, which is totally opposed in every way uh, to the biblical culture of marriage. Now, when you study this particular passage, one of the problems with it is, is that Paul had received a letter from the Corinthians asking very specific questions about their various situations in what we'll call marriage. And to try to understand what Paul is saying is sort of like when you read it, listening to a telephone conversation uh, where you're listening to someone talk on the phone, but you can only hear what they're saying, of course, and then you're imagining what the other person might be saying. And so in this case, we have to use our imagination only a little bit because it's, I think it's pretty obvious, but that Paul is answering very specific questions regarding marriage and divorce and all kinds of things in that, uh, in that situation. And so the Corinthian Christians truly wanted to know what to do and why. But this sexually charged daily culture they still lived in confuses them terribly. So to be married or not to be married, that is the question, and it's not a Shakespearean play. Now, I've called the sermon the gospel of marriage, and that may seem strange. I always try to come up with a, uh, with a name for the sermon that represents the purpose of what Paul is doing here. And so uh, this is the gospel of marriage. And if we get this right, we can really impact the world around us. So Paul is going to be thorough but strong. He knew these people well. He had lived among them for 18 months. So he felt free to be very transparent. Paul was in favor of biblical marriage. And his model verse would be Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. This is a picture of marriage. For this reason, a man will leave his father. That's a, a, a man, a male man, not a male man. But a male man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Now, you'll notice that I underlined even italicized one here. We've talked about this quite a bit already. But marriage, Christian marriage, is to be a picture of the gospel. And the intimacy of marriage and the friendship of marriage is a reflection of our intimacy and friendship 
that we have, spiritually speaking, with our Father who loved us enough to send a son to die for us, who uh, died on the cross, rose from the dead, sent the Holy Spirit so that we could have that incredible, real, intimate relationship with our Father. And so a good marriage from a Christian standpoint, is a, should be a clear picture of what it really means to be a Christian. Now, there were those in the church who were saying that Christians should not marry at all, as that would be a distraction from doing God's will. And Paul reacted strongly against such an idea. He was very much in favor of marriage and outline the roles of husbands and wives and children in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, which we will get to eventually again and, and study in detail. But Paul was very upset at those who in any way would be against marriage. As a matter of fact, near the end of Paul's life, he wrote to his disciple Timothy, I like to call him Pastor Timothy, these words. 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 to 3. Now, the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last time, some will turn away from the true faith, and they'll follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. These people are hypocrites and liars, and their consciences are dead. And then he says this, they will say it is wrong to be married. The book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 4, some believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. He may or may not have, but it does say this about marriage. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. And that's what we talked about in the last couple of sermons. Now, here's how it starts in verse 1. Paul writes, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but since sexual immorality is occurring, it was occurring in the culture, but as we learned last week, it was occurring even in the church. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man Christian man, should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty. Now, the Greek word for duty is a word that talks about debt. It talks about owing something, especially money, but debt. So you could read it this way in verse 3. The husband should fulfill his, or the husband owes it to his wife to fulfill his marital duty. And likewise, the wife owes it to her husband to fulfill the marital duty. And then verse 4 says, the wife does not have authority over her own body. Now, some of you are getting nervous here but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Now, in Corinthian patriarchal culture, 
Husbands demanded of their wives sexuality. They demanded it of their wives. But biblically, regarding sex in marriage, the man and the woman are equal. So the picture is not, you owe me, but I owe you. To have a satisfying, intimate relationship in a marriage, the goal must be mutual satisfaction. If your desire is only to fulfill your personal needs, you will soon discover that you're throwing away any chance of enjoying the good of what God designed sex and marriage to be. Now, that's what's wrong with sex outside of marriage. It is a man, in most cases, betraying a woman, using her body for his lustful pleasures. Sex in marriage is not to be a lustful desire fulfilled by a wife or a husband. That is what happens when pornography is viewed by either partner. It destroys God's design. In his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Lust is going after the body. Love is going after the person. Sex is a God-approved, pleasurable privilege for the purpose of populating the earth and experiencing a spiritual and physical oneness within an exclusive marriage relationship between a man and a woman who both love God and serve him. In Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, I try to read a, a, a book on marriage, uh, a new one every year. A couple of years ago, I think it was, that I read The Meaning of Marriage. That's, I can't recommend it stronger. Both uh, uh, Tim Keller and his wife wrote the book together, and it's one of the best books of marriage I've ever read. But here's a quote from the book. A deeply devoted, loyal marriage relationship requires a surrendering of one's independence. But now, remember you're listening to a conversation going back and forth in a sense. Paul offers an exception because of something that was happening. And so verse 5 here, he says, do not deprive each other. Now the way the Greek grammar works, it is, Stop depriving each other as you're doing of sexual relationship. Except, perhaps, by mutual consent, and for a time, meaning a short time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So I want to say this, and, and, and maybe not too carefully. Do not use sex as a stick to beat up your husband or wife. A withdrawal of sex for any purpose other than a mutual relationship to pray together for an urgent need will eventually destroy a marriage. It's an act of cruelty. Now, verse 6 is very interesting because it shows us something about Paul that I've talked about often. Verse 6 simply says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. Paul is an urging type person. He's not like a cult leader. He's not telling you what to do. 
unless the Bible says that that's what you're to do, unless God says that we're to do. Like he says, I urge you, therefore, uh, brother and brothers and sisters, to give your life, 12, 1 and 2 of Romans, I urge you to give your life as a living sacrifice. He doesn't say, I command you, I'm an apostle, this is the right thing to do. I urge you to do that, and here will be the result if you will choose to do that. And so here he says, uh, I say this regarding your intimate relationship as a concession, but it's not a, it's not a command. So Paul is not saying that you are to stop having sex so you can pray. You can pray and have sex. But since some in the church were saying that prayer is more important than sex, Paul says, okay, but only when you both agree and then fulfill your plan to return to the relationship God has ordained for you in marriage. Paul is making it clear that their present practice of avoiding intimacy in marriage can only result in more sexual immorality among those who are married. And of course, it is possible that one partner has a medical problem and can't enjoy a sexual relationship. In most cases, a visit to the doctor can solve the problem. But if there is a medical reason for no sex... That gives the other partner an opportunity to love his wife or her husband by being extra kind and totally faithful, pure, no pornography, no wandering eyes, just complete devotion toward the partner who no longer can fulfill that part of a marriage. So here's Paul's ideal, verse 7. Now you know, don't you, that Paul wasn't married. Whether he ever was married or not, it's another point I'm not going to deal with. But he definitely wasn't married at this time at all. He was single. No marriage. So in verse 7, he, he says to them, because he's answering some questions now. We're not quite sure what exactly the questions are. But he says, I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has his own gift. Now, that word gift is the word we get charismatic from, charismatic gifts, and we're going to study them in some detail soon. But uh, each of you has your own gift. What he's saying is, is his singleness is a gift. Marriage is a gift. And each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, and another has that. So what Paul is saying here is that he feels his gift of singleness allows him much more freedom to fulfill God's plan for his life. All gifts come from God. The, the charismatic gifts, the gifts that we read about in, later on in Paul's writings and Peter's and others, all gifts come from God and are for the building up of the church. Paul sees his singleness as a gift, the gift of celibacy and not a gift everyone has. And if that were the case, then in one generation, there'd be no more Christians. There is no gift, none, that everyone has when it comes to spiritual gifts. If there were, then we would all be judged by the presence or absence of that one gift. Now, the reality is we all do have one or more spiritual gifts, all of us. When you become a Christian, 
and are filled with the Spirit, you received spiritual gifts from God that you didn't have before. Uh, maybe it's just one particular gift. Maybe it's more than one gift. But you, every one of us has a spiritual gift or multiple spiritual gifts. And those gifts have been given to each of us by God to benefit the body of Christ. That's the Bible name for the church to, as a whole. The problem is not that people don't have gifts. That's not the problem. The problem is that we all have gifts, but only a few use those gifts for the good of all of us. Plus, not having the gift of celibacy is no excuse for sexual immorality. Unmarried men and women must refrain from sexual intimacy whether they feel like it or not. The gift of celibacy means that Paul is completely happy to stay unmarried for the sake of the gospel. I've heard a lot of sermons on gifts, and I've never heard a sermon urging people to have the gift of celibacy. <laughs> By the way, none of the disciples had this gift. Not even Peter, who had a mother-in-law. So I assume he had a wife. Oh, the Bible does say that Peter had a wife and that he was married. The sexual drive in those who are single can be very powerful. But because of the Spirit of God in us, we're able to control it. So we'll define celibacy this way. Celibacy is a genuine gift of freedom from sexual need. A truly celibate person is not more spiritual than someone who really wants to get married, which is more often the case. Now, now look at verse 8. He's talking, he's answering some different questions now. Now to the unmarried, that's those who have never been married or aren't married any longer or whatever, and the widows, that's the women who have lost their husbands. I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Here's where a different translation can help. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 8, and 9 in the Holman Bible reads this way. I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am, but if they do not have self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with lust. Now, what you should know is that in that culture, getting married was very different from our culture. Marriages were arranged, and the romanticism of our culture did not exist as it is today. I do prefer our culture, but we must recognize that the unmarried and widows would pretty easily be able to get remarried. So as a result, I, I want to talk for a minute to those who are single. So I'm going to talk just to the singles for a minute. One problem today is what men and women are looking for in a marriage partner. I think it is a mistake to make one's overriding goal in life finding a marriage partner. Now, clearly God approves of marriage. And I think it's equally clear that he hasn't hidden our marriage partner away like some child's game of hide and seek. 
And I'm not against some form of dating. We went through a time in this church a few years ago. Somebody wrote a book called something like I Gave Up Dating. And it became dangerous to say that you were dating in our church uh, because they, had just, they said the same thing with different words and made people that were dating feel kind of guilty. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not against some form of, of dating, coming to know one another. And I'm not even against uh, dating sites. Oh, I know, some of you have been here a long time. I did preach against them once, but I repented. <laughs> but I will say, be very careful of these sites. They are full of predators. Now, we have a number of people in our church who met through a Christian dating site, and it worked out good. But I could tell you a story or two of some that didn't work out so good. So just be very, very careful. And if you're going to be part of the body of Christ and including others into your life, you're not just all isolated, then you'll be pretty safe in that area. But we can trust in God's perfect timing that he will supply our partner for a lifetime journey of godly service, friendship, sexual satisfaction, and in many cases, parenting. Now, obviously, we're not going to get married if there's no physical attraction whatsoever, but it would do all singles good to sit down and make a list of what they want in a man or a woman. And let me give you an example. Uh, years ago, we had a woman worship leader, a young woman worship leader that became very important to Valerie and I. We became very close. And uh, she decided she was being asked out a lot. She's a pretty public person, and she wasn't married, and so she was being asked out a lot. So she sat down, and she wrote a paper called My Boaz. And it was a very detailed paper of what she would want in a husband. It was a very spiritual paper uh, talking about spiritual gifting and all kinds of things. And it had a few things to say about what the husband might look like. There's no doubt. But then she gave it to Valerie and I and said that uh, if anybody wants to take her out at a date, that they had to ask us first. And I can remember one particular friend of mine who came to me and I had to say to him, no, uh, no, you're just... You're not the one. (laughs) You're not the one. And then she ended up marrying a very good friend of mine at the time, and and they had a wonderful marriage. Unfortunately, he died recently of cancer, and and, uh, that was very sad, but they had an incredible marriage. And their memorial service was an example of what a great marriage can be like. Now, but we, we, even in that, we need to be careful because Chuck Swindoll tells a story where he said something similar to what I said, and uh, one young man got talking to him, and I don't know what Pastor Chuck says, and he says the, he's better at telling these stories than I am, but what he ended up doing because of whatever Chuck said, uh, Pastor Swindoll, uh, he ended up buying a bikini and putting it on the bottom of his bed and say, God, please fill it. <laughs> I don't recommend that. In the meantime, the unmarried, the unmarried among us, 
should be the most active in service in the church. Take advantage of your freedom to pursue the Lord and serve his people. Some of the greatest missionaries in history were single, are single, men and women serving the Lord and leaving their marital future up to him who thinks marriage is a good thing. So it is not better to be single or better to be married when it comes to serving the Lord. It is just different. But in my estimation, the best place and time to find a marriage partner is where and while I am using my gifts and talents for the glory of God and the power of, in the body of Christ, in the church. Another good place to find a partner in this church has been during short-term mission trips. I mean, I could introduce you to quite a few people in our church who went on a short-term mission trip to a far distant part in the world and then came back uh, with a marriage partner over time. It didn't just happen in that one visit, but <laughs> over time. And, uh, and so that's a really good way uh, to meet someone uh, who would be very much like-minded. Now, on Wednesday night, when we prayed off Jim and those going to Senegal, we also prayed for uh, Luann, who is here, and she spoke to us. And uh, she's in Turkey. And uh, I, I think of uh, how she has turned the sadness of divorce into a long-term ministry reaching Muslims for Christ. And as a result, many among us have become involved in short-term mission trips to Turkey, and more will go again. Now, Luann may get married again. I don't have any inside information. But if she does, she can enjoy the fact that she didn't waste any of the years of her singleness. So it's not better to be single or better to be married when it comes to serving the Lord. As I've already said, it is just different. Now Paul deals with the difficulties of marriage when divorce shows up because of one's commitment to the gospel. So here's what he has to say. It's another different group now. Verse 10. To the married, Paul writes, I give this command, and that right away gets your attention. Command? Not I, but the Lord. This is the Lord's command. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Well, the first thing we have to ask is, well, what did Jesus say? Well, talking about marriage and the result of a married relationship, in Matthew 19, 6, Jesus said, so they, the married couple, are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And it's a powerful sentence because uh, if it's one flesh, to separate means you're tearing the flesh apart. And the marriage, divorce and marriage under almost any circumstances, is, is not a good thing. Not a good thing. And then in Matthew 19, again, verses 8 and 9, Jesus replied, now here's the background. The people are saying, well, what about Moses? He said it was okay to get divorced. And Jesus said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of your hearts were hard, very hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for porneia, that's the Greek word for pornography, we use for pornography, sexual immorality, 
and marries another woman, commits adultery. That's pretty strong stuff. Now, I've taught on divorce and remarriage often, and well, again, during our exposition of Paul's writings, but that's not the purpose of what Paul is saying here. Nevertheless, I do have to say this because of my experience as a pastor. Uh, I always put, when I talk anything to do with divorce or remarriage at any level, I always say this. It's not God's will. One should stay in an abusive marriage where we'll say it's usually a husband who is uh, physically hurting his wife. Uh, or even if it's a psychological thing. And then and, and you may think, well, why are you mentioning that? Paul isn't mentioning that. Well, I'm mentioning that because I, I can't tell you how many times over the decades I've had mostly women come to me not knowing what to do because they're in a terrible marriage situation and they went to a pastor or some kind of a leader in the church and they were told in no uncertain terms that it doesn't matter what he does, you cannot leave, you have to stay, you have to take it, you have to trust God. Think of the people on the mission field that are uh, being uh, even killed for their faith and all this kind of stuff. And it's just a terrible thing for somebody to say something like that. And I've many times been able to say, you need to get out of that situation as soon as you can. We'll do all we can to help, but you need to get away. No one needs to stay in that situation. Well, what is important here is that both Jesus and Paul saw marriage as permanent. The issue shouldn't be remarriage, but reconciliation. Our desire should always be to find some way to reconcile a marriage until it is agreed by all to be impossible. But we live in the real world, and many here, even this morning, have experienced the pain of divorce. And if you have divorced and remarried, even if you had no biblical grounds for remarriage, don't try to unravel it. Simply ask God for forgiveness and make your present marriage permanent and wonderful. Let's do everything we can to make our present marriages great and our future marriages permanent. But regardless of any mistakes one makes, if you repent of your sin, if you've done it wrong, you can repent of your sin and it'll bring you back to Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is another one of these issues that I've had come up quite often and somebody came to me after the first service to say how much their wife was relieved hearing what I had to say because apparently in another church situation because of a divorce... Uh, that uh, she had felt completely condemned. But we need to be careful how that works out. Um, I, I've heard that way too often. One time I was in my office when I had an office here in the church and wasn't kicked out of the church because there wasn't any room. Um, <laughs> I was in the, uh, my office and a couple came in. This is decades and decades ago. And uh, they were fairly new to the church. They'd been here a while. They were getting to be known. And they came in, made an appointment, and they came in. They said, the reason we made an appointment, we want to teach Sunday school. 
And I, I was really kind of surprised. I thought they maybe had a marriage problem. And you want to teach Sunday school? Yeah, I said, great. When do you want to start? We always need Sunday school teachers. And they've been here a while. And they were very emotional. And they said, well, um, <clears throat> we just want you to know that uh, we've been divorced. And I said, yeah, and you're married now, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. When do you want to start teaching Sunday school? <laughs> and uh, they started to cry. And they told me that they had been in another church for a long time and they really loved kids and they really wanted to teach Sunday school and they were told they could never, ever teach Sunday school. And so uh, you might think that I asked them, tell me your background. I said, Are you, you're married now and you're having a great relationship, right? Right? Good. Just tell me again. When do you want to teach Sunday school? And they started to cry. They eventually, uh, with our blessing, left here and started another church years later. Uh, you know, divorce isn't the unforgivable sin. But that doesn't mean that we should not do everything we can to prevent people from being divorced. Divorce is a terrible thing. And, and, but we still must realize that God is a forgiving God. And, uh, and so I think that's important for us to understand how we feel here. Well, now Paul handles... A real problem in the Corinthian church. The Christians in Corinth are a distinct minority. I think I made that clear. All were saved out of a pagan culture. And the divide between belief and practice could not have been more difficult. So it was not uncommon for a married couple fully involved in the culture to have only one in the marriage become a follower of Jesus. Now we have two people with totally different views of life married. So what should happen? Should the believer leave the unbeliever? Some were saying so. I've had some come to me wanting to leave their marriage partner because he or she has not become a Christian, and this has put a tremendous tension into the relationship. So what did Paul say? Well, here it is, verse 12. Paul says, verse 12, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. Now, this wasn't something the Lord specifically spoke about, but nevertheless, Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, the Apostle Paul, speaks to the problem of a marriage where one of the partners is not a believer. And here's what he says. If any brother, Christian, has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Now, I know you know a lot about the word sanctified. We've taught it a lot here, and what it means you're justified first, you become a Christian, then you're being sanctified. That means you're becoming hopefully better as time goes on, spiritually speaking. But the word sanctified here is used totally differently from how Paul normally uses the word. Obviously, it doesn't mean the husband is eternally saved, but it does mean he is blessed to be in this marriage with a Christian wife. The husband in this case can be even used by God, even though he isn't a Christian, and maybe with the wife's godly influence, maybe he will be saved. 
Paul says in this kind of marriage where the unbelieving partner has decided to stay in the marriage, it is the unbeliever that is most likely to become influenced or eventually saved. In other words, holiness is more powerful than sin. So in a mixed marriage of this type, the Christian partner who lives her Christian life before her husband will either attract him to the faith or he'll reject her and eventually leave. And if the unbeliever decides to leave, it will be because he is completely unwilling to compromise his lifestyle for his family. And then the wife or the husband becomes free from that marriage relationship. Even the children are protected by God in this situation, and it can be expected that the believing partner will have a greater influence on their view of the faith, the view the children have. And that's why Paul says, otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Holy here means they're set apart for God's purposes until they come to an age where they could receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. So as you can see, Paul has a very high view of marriage. Also notice that the reason the spouse is staying is for the sake of the gospel, which is always a higher reason than our own comfort. Remember, we're only temporary residents of this world. We live here for a very short time. Therefore, we must do all we can to model what it means to live for Jesus so others will be attracted to the gospel. So look at verse 15. But, Paul says, if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister, the Christian brother or sister, is not bound in such circumstances. In other words, not bound to maintain the marriage. And he says, why? God has called us to live in peace. But then Paul adds these words. Verse 16. How do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? Paul is as strong as he can be that when it comes to marriage, we're to do everything possible to keep it intact. Marriage is a picture of God's love for the world, and the world should be seeing in the church how to be married and stay that way, and stay that way. Paul is not dealing here specifically with remarriage, but he does not say he disallows remarriage in such cases. He simply doesn't speak to it at all, really. But because of what Jesus said about remarriage, and because of the way Paul puts this together, I feel pretty comfortable in saying that in the, this case, a wife or a husband can be remarried. When you look at what Jesus had to say, uh, he basically said the innocent party in a divorce situation can be remarried. And we studied that in some detail. So Paul is handling the difficult problems in the Corinthian church pertaining to the wrong views on sexuality and spirituality in the surrounding culture. He is giving instruction on marriage and singleness on celibacy and sexual purpose. Our marriages in the church should be one of the most evangelistic tools of all. I was talking to somebody earlier this morning about statistics that I don't, I almost never use statistics in a sermon. 
because I'm told that 98.9% .9 of all statistics are wrong. <laughs> but I did do some reading about divorce, remarriage, and other things this week. And the one thing that the divorce rate and all that, that didn't, I didn't feel I had any reason to put that in the sermon. But what really sh almost shocked me, that is more than a statistic, it's just a fact, is how few people in America today are getting married. And it was, it's really quite amazing. When you look at the numbers of marriages, which are all registered someplace, uh, and you, you, it's almost like almost nobody gets married anymore unless it's for purposes of tax reasons. And if, if you even take that out, then it's like it's very rare people get married. They just live together. And then that way it's easy to just separate. But you can get married because you get a tax break if you do, and that might help, but that's kind of ridiculous when it comes to what we believe and what the Bible has to say. And it's really, really sad. So it's become the norm almost in our society just for people to live together. Nobody sees anything wrong with it. It's just, what's wrong with that? I love her, she loves me, and we'll just live together. And that's why we must do everything, I've just said this, but we must do everything we can to protect our marriages so that the world will last why so few of us actually get divorced. In the meantime, we live in a sinful world, and even in the church, there'll be divorce. But how we live our married lives and persevere when the marriages fail, how we work and play and pray, should have a great impact on the world around us. Jesus said, by the way, when I looked up the statistics, he didn't say anything at all about the church, which really surprised me because every time I've looked them up before, it does. Jesus said that those in the world will know us by our love for one another. So we must work hard at ministering to each other, especially those who are going through difficulties in marriage relationships. We're a family, and we must help one another through all of life's difficulties. If we are like this, then we'll have much opportunity to tell everyone about Jesus as the only way to peace in this life and the one to come. But we must be the church. Oh, I know. You're th you know here he goes again. I know, but we must be the church. Just coming to church is a waste of time. Well, then I won't come anymore. Good. I mean, that's good because it's a waste of time. The church gathered is a place to come together to learn how to be built up so we can go out in the world and make a difference and so we can come to know one another and they can come to know us. And that way we can make our proper compromises for the sake of the people in the church and pay attention to one another and encourage one another. In the first service, a good friend was here sitting right in the front and we had talked about this before the sermon. And uh, he's going through one of these situations right now. And he needs more, he needs to be paid more attention to than normal. And so the only people that are going to pay attention to him are people who know them. And the only people he's going to tell are the people he knows. And so there's people in our church that are really being helpful. And so the reason that we gather together and the reason that we become a Christian is to be the church, use our gifts, minister to one another, 
do all I can to let myself be known and do all I can to come to know you and to be to meet together as often as possible so we can pray for one another and so we can rub off on each other and God can change us in that way. And if we do that, the world will say, look at how they love one another. Look at the, you see that guy there? He goes to that church and so does that guy. Those two go to the same church? Yes, and they're friends. And they care about one another. That's what Jesus said the world could use to, to, to judge whether our relationship is real. And that's why it's important that we don't just come to church, but that we are the church. And that we're looking forward to being among the saints. That's the word for Christian in the church, those who are set apart for God's purposes. And, and we then come to church gathered to learn from the word and then to go out and do the word. So let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this particular church. I thank you for all that you're doing among us uh, in this church, especially in the last couple or three years. And I just pray, Father, that you'll raise up more and more of those around us in the church here to be able to help us. And I think of people that are in this service that are taking on new ministries, even right now, so that other people in our church can come to know other people in our church. And that's one of the most important things that we can do, so that when we go out into the world, they can tell right away that there's a difference. And then our neighbors and friends will want to know what goes on in that church. They don't realize that it's not just a building yet. And so, Father, I just pray for us. I pray for our marriages, that you will help us to make them really strong. I pray for reconciliations that may be needed, uh, even in some people's lives right here or watching online. And I pray, Father, that by your Spirit, that you will help us to minister to each other so that we can go out into the world and tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ, the only way to heaven and the only way to really have a peaceful and joyful life, regardless of the circumstances of our culture. In Jesus' name, amen.